This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, an internal medicine physician at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. We are in fighting one of the biggest crises in the modern era. Two million cases have been identified. Over 132,000 deaths have happened all over the world. In US alone, we've had more than 27,000 deaths. Most of the deaths revolve around a patient getting into the ICU, having a lung problem. Today, we are joined by Dr. Alexander Niven, who's Associate Professor of Medicine and Consultant in Pulmonary and Critical Care Medicine at Mayo Clinic, Rochester. He's a distinguished educator. He has a very distinguished career in the Army before he joined us. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Thank you for having me. It's a privilege to be here. So Alex, I would like you to just explore for us some of the scope. I know the, the topic is broad and complex, but I want to kind of deal with some of the essentials. Could you explain the range of the pulmonary symptoms that is that we are seeing in COVID-19? Absolutely. So I think when we talk about COVID-19 infections, there are many things that sound familiar with, uh, with some, a few important differences. So the SARS-CoV-2 virus, as we know, is a coronavirus. And we are very familiar with all sorts of different clinical presentations of coronavirus infections, because quite honestly, many of them exist in our environment or existed in our environment before this pandemic occurred. I think just to rewind and, and give just a bit of a general view of what we think about when we think about SARS-CoV-2 and in the, in the COVID-19 infection, one of the big reasons why we're faced with a pandemic now is because the viral infection has a long prodromal phase that we think may last up to a week where people are largely asymptomatic but still infectious. But once the symptoms do start, there are a lot, a, a number of very classic signs that honestly are very similar to other viral infections that we expect. So fever is common, present in somewhere between 77 and 98% in the latest thing that I've read. Cough is a very common clinical finding in over a half to two thirds of individuals who present, and that cough can either be non-productive or productive of various degrees and appearances of sputum. Dyspnea is, or shortness of breath, is common in about a third of patients. And then the other things that we think about, again, are things that make us think about a viral process. So myalgias, achy bones and muscles, headache, sore throat. There are um, episodic uh, cases that have been reported with hemoptysis or coughing up blood, in addition to nonspecific GI symptoms like diarrhea. So Alex, because you're a pulmonologist, I'm going to focus on, and you are probably going to be the most important doctor who's taking care of these patients because of what happens to them later on if things don't go right. What is the difference between the dyspnea, which is reported in COVID patients, from other causes of infection? Why is dyspnea important in this case, in, in, or serious in this case? And does it always mean that once a patient has dyspnea, they would require hospitalization or ICU treatment? 
Yeah, so the short answer to that is no, uh, because I think if we put every patient with a COVID infection who had dyspnea in the hospital or in the ICU, we our health system would be even more overwhelmed than it is in many areas of the country and quite honestly, the world as well. We do know that there are certain patient populations that have increased risk of clinical deterioration and progression to respiratory failure. Although the clinical characteristics of that phenotype is still in evolution because we're learning more information about this disease all the time, the risk factors that at least have been described out there in the literature is older age, although there certainly are a number of cases now of younger patients with very severe disease that, that have emerged in, uh, in ongoing reports. Uh, male gender may be a little bit of a predisposing factor, and whether that's an independent factor itself or a reflection of the higher prevalence of underlying cardiac or pulmonary conditions in many older males. Other risk factors that we think about include either absolute or relative states of immune compromise. So certainly cancer patients on chemotherapy, other um, immune compromising conditions, or simply poorly controlled diabetes is on this list. And uh, in addition to cancer and of course the, the related therapies with that. So, you know, the challenge or the, the patients that we particularly worry about with dyspnea are the patients who have developed symptoms, have now had their symptoms for a little bit of time, and then develop progressive increasing respiratory complaints and deterioration of their, their respiratory status. So hypoxemia, you know, worsening respiratory distress, those are the individuals who are at particularly high risk. We think that some of this time course of respiratory progression is perhaps related to the COVID-19 infection itself and some of the unique characteristics of this virus and the inflammation that it causes in the lungs. I think the prevalence of co-infections with other respiratory viruses, perhaps getting a little bit less common now that we're moving into the later spring, but early on in this, there was a lot of question about the risk of co-infection between influenza and COVID-19. And then certainly, just like other viral infections, we worry about the risk of bacterial superinfection, so or a superimposed bacterial pneumonia on top of the, of the COVID pneumonia. So this becomes a very complicated situation very quickly. So it's interesting that you mentioned that even though the patient could be having COVID for three, four days, and then the dyspnea, they could have a low level of shortness of breath, and then they certainly could decompensate at the fourth day or fifth day, but there are some reports now um, of decompensating at about the second day, and we don't know whether they went undiagnosed prior to that for a couple of days. And I've also read about this uh, cytokine storm, which is, which they're saying is the reason for decompensation. Is this that what's going on? Yeah, so I, I think the, the, question, the, the answer to that is maybe. Um, certainly, we know that patients, when they present with moderate to severe COVID or symptoms associated with COVID infections, have very high levels of inflammation, looking at the typical inflammatory parameters that we see. Uh, there's a lot of discussion out there uh, with regards to high levels of IL-6 and how that, along with other 
markers within the inflammatory cascade may translate into uh, enhanced lung inflammation and organ dysfunction as a whole. Honestly, I'm having trouble keeping up with all of the different reports out there and, uh, and especially recognize the fact that much of the information that I'm getting is from um, slightly less than usually vetted sources because all of our journals are publishing um, information very rapidly with, uh, with a, a sometimes a shortened level of peer review. And then of course, I think we all are subject to the explosion of information on social media and, uh, and other sort of non-official sources that help to inform our understanding of the different observations that people are having. But, um, but I, I struggle to systematize that uh, into my clinical practice, recognizing that, that many of those observations may not be supported by objective evidence when the dust settles. So some of the inflammatory markers that you mentioned, IL-6, but I've also seen ferritin being measured on a regular basis and procalcitonin. Is, is that, that's, there's something about procalcitonin coming out probably later in the course of the illness rather than earlier. Yeah, so certainly we have some experience looking at common inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein and ferritin, both of which are markedly elevated along with the IL-6 that you've described. Most of our experience with that has been drawing these markers as part of ongoing clinical trials, looking at different treatments. Uh, so I know that within the Mayo Clinic Enterprise, we actually have slightly different algorithms in terms of the, the frequency of testing and the spectrum of testing that we're performing in our different sites. We, I think, have taken a little bit more of a conservative approach here at Rochester, mainly recognizing some of the significant workflow and infection control issues that can go along with frequent blood draws and trying to strike a, a reasonable equipoise between discovery and helping to characterize these individuals with COVID-19 infections, identify the phenotypes that predispose them to clinical deterioration, especially progressive respiratory failure and ARDS. And then obviously understanding these phenotypes will also help us to better identify who is the best candidate and will benefit best from the many different um, therapies that currently are under clinical investigation. So I apologize for dodging the question a little bit. I, I think this is all very much a moving target. So we've been working very closely with our infectious disease colleagues in the intensive care units and on the wards. And much of the testing when it comes to inflammatory markers have been, have been driven by, again, the clinical trials that we are actively trying to enroll patients in so that we can understand this disease as rapidly as we can uh, and have higher quality evidence to help guide our diagnostic and treatment decisions. So there's a lot coming out in literature about the CT scans and chest X-rays. I know in Mayo, we don't do routine CT scans of lung of COVID, but is there something characteristic? If, you were to, if I were to show you a CT scan or an X-ray of a patient with COVID-19, which would be different from the previous illness like SARS or influenza or our typical lower pneumonia, are there typical patterns or are they similar? Yeah, so actually there are some sort of characteristic features that, that we often refer to, although to speak frankly, many of the findings are relatively nonspecific and associated with many other viral infections. 
But since we have a new set of guidelines that was just published by the Fleshner Society within the last several days, I thought it might be worthwhile just to review the key points from those guidelines, especially for those frontline providers who are seeing these patients, I think, all the time. So the Fleshner Society is a collaborative society that includes chest physicians and radiologists from uh, and, and with a true international presence and reputation. And, uh, and so they just published a set of guidelines that basically included three essential points. So the first point is that imaging is not indicated in patients with suspected COVID-19 infections who have mild symptoms, unless they're at significant risk for disease progression. And then the argument is perhaps just to establish a baseline for further reevaluation should they clinically deteriorate. The reasoning behind that is because the chest X-ray findings of COVID, especially early in the illness, are relatively nonspecific, and chest radiographs in and of themselves are pretty insensitive early in the disease course. When changes are present, really you see bilateral patchy infiltrates, which in and of themselves are relatively nonspecific and diff difficult to dis distinguish in terms of an infectious or perhaps even another source like heart failure or something else along those lines. The other reason why the Fleshner Society is recommending against routine chest x-rays in patients with mild symptoms is because they're not particularly actionable. So those individuals are largely going to be treated supportively anyway. And by ordering those chest x-rays, we're creating a whole layer of complexity from an infection control standpoint when it comes to potentially exposing other patients, healthcare workers, and then the personal protective equipment that has been uh, so popularized, the challenges with our supply chain with that. We wanna preserve that as much as possible. So if patients have worsening respiratory status, um, and signs or symptoms of a COVID infection, that is where the Fleshner Society recommends that imaging be performed. First of all, to identify the extent of lung involvement in terms of these infiltrates. And then also, uh, perhaps more importantly, to exclude other clinical diagnoses. We know that dyspnea is one of the most common reasons why people present to an outpatient clinic and is extremely common in patients who present to an emergency department or admitted to the hospital. And that shortness of breath can come from certainly COVID-19, but it can also come from heart failure, lobar pneumonia, pulmonary emboli. We can't forget about our common differential diagnosis for dyspnea in these patients. Chest X-ray is the first starting off point for that. And then certainly CT imaging can help with this as well. So, CT scans are probably a little bit more sensitive than any other test that we have to detect lung involvement from COVID. What's been described is these patchy ground glass infiltrates that can occur within the first week of infection and then over time will coalesce, uh, so sort of blend together and often are subplural, so sort of on the periphery of the lungs, uh, on the outside close to the chest wall, and more frequently in the lower lobes. So certainly those, those things can be helpful if you're thinking about a COVID infection. I think there was a little bit of a flurry early on in terms of use of CT scans for screening. That was before we had ready availability for COVID testing, and, uh, and that is not something we should be thinking about anymore. 
but CT scans can also help to, um, again, exclude other clinically significant things that we worry about in patients with COVID infection. There is an ongoing uh, debate about the risk of thrombosis and hypercoagulable states in patients with, uh, with, with COVID-19 infections. And so obviously using CT angiograms to rule out venous thromboembolism is another reason why we think about CT imaging in the setting. I, I guess the last thing, just to highlight the third element on the Fleschner guidelines, they talk about using imaging to help stratify or triage patients in resource-limited settings um, where, where the results of COVID testing may be delayed. Fortunately, that has not been the case, at least in this area. But when you have limited ICU resources, for example, using a chest X-ray to help stratify individuals with more significant parenchymal disease in, in addition to other physiologic data may help us to decide you know, which patients would benefit most from that precious ICU bed that's left. To complicate it, a patient with COVID-19 could have all the above, could have heart failure going on and also could have a pulmonary embolism because of the thrombotic effects of COVID. They have coagulation disorders as well as they are immobile. It is, a, it is a, quite a challenge for, for all of us, especially frontline critical care uh, pulmonary to kind of differentiate. And that may be the reason to do CT scan and, and follow up from you could, you could probably not have it one day and the next day it might show something different. So my, my question would be, you have a large experience of managing patients with ARDS, pneumonia, flu. Why is it that the world over, uh, there's a, so much talk about if the patient gets into the respiratory crisis, the prognosis is so much worse. Is it traditionally that patients who develop lung problems get that kind of prognosis or there is something unique about COVID which makes their prognosis bad, especially if they have some of those comorbid illnesses. Yeah, well, as, as with most of the rest of these topics that we've been discussing, I think this is a subject in evolution, uh, but I can certainly share with you my understanding of, of the experience that's out there up to this point. So I think that uh, first and foremost, it's important to stress the fact that respiratory symptoms in COVID in the initial clinical presentation uh, can be unreliable. So you had referred earlier to the fact that there are a number of case reports of patients who present, look relatively clinically stable, have um, some degree of physiologic derangement, and then rapidly decompensate despite the best tests that we have. And honestly, identifying those patients is still a challenge. And uh, I think you've highlighted the complexity of the disease with regards to the lung involvement, the potential heart involvement. Uh, there's a well-documented incidence of myocarditis and predominantly systolic dysfunction in these patients. And then also the risk of a hypercoagulable state and either pulmonary microvascular dysfunction or pulmonary thrombosis. And so I think really to answer your question, why is respiratory failure so significant in COVID patients? I think it's the hypoxemia, the degree of the hypoxemia and its duration, especially when we're dealing with a pandemic with large numbers of patients presenting to medical facilities all at once. 
and then those facilities are struggling to deal with the burden of, of respiratory failure, the number of patients who are there, and honestly, the amount of technology that they require for support, uh, be it nasal cannula oxygen, uh, high flow humidified oxygen or high flow nasal cannula is the other thing that people refer to it as. Non-invasive ventilation where we use CPAP or, or BiPAP, a mask to help support people both with oxygenation and ventilation. And then of course, invasive mechanical ventilation. I think the common experience is that it is, it is not infrequent for these patients to have a prolonged course with significant hypoxemia for a, a long period of time, you know, up to a week or more or, you know, several weeks. And that adds more stress to the system in terms of the support, the physiologic support that they need. There's a lot of talk about managing these patients slightly differently. I know the prone type of ventilation has been there uh, in the past, it's been described, but can you describe for our audience, what is this prone ventilation? And when would you consider doing a prone ventilation for a patient with COVID who's on a ventilator? Is it all the patients or you see something in the CT scan or x-rays which tell you this patient absolutely has to have intermittent prone ventilation? Oh, so that's a tough question. So uh, I'll say up front that uh, the current thought process is that there are potentially two different phenotypes of respiratory failure in folks with COVID. One group of patients have um, basically low oxygen levels, but relatively compliant lungs. And the other population of patients have a clinical presentation, which is more typical of ARDS or the acute respiratory distress syndrome. And again, just to review for our audience, uh, the ARDS is a clinical syndrome that we typically characterize using the Berlin definition, which is diffuse infiltrates on chest X-ray, significant hypoxemia that we stratify using a PaO2 over FiO2 ratio of less than 300, and severe ARDS typically is a PaO2 over FiO2 ratio of less than 100. And then these findings are not due to heart failure. So in those patients, the, classically, the ARDS patients, we have uh, some very time-honored honored strategies that make a difference in the setting. That includes early intubation, lung rest, using low tidal volume ventilation, typically four to six and a half cc's per kilo, controlling the pressure that the lungs see, the transpulmonary pressure through a variety of different things, measuring plateau pressure or maybe driving pressure, and then usually a higher level of PEEP. There's been a lot of debate about whether or not this traditional strategy should be employed in the first phenotype group of patients, the folks who are hypoxemic but compliant you know, in the lungs. And that I think is still a moving target and something, a practice that we need to inform with more data. So at least in our clinical practice, we are sticking very closely with the established ATS ERS guidelines in terms of ARDS management for these individuals. Prone positioning, which uh, that you were asking about before, is basically a way to help improve the matching of the ventilation and perfusion match matching. So the mixing of oxygen and ventilation in the alveoli and lung perfusion. We know that when we put people on their stomachs, that their ventilation and perfusion matching improves. And we also splint their chest wall, which when you're on a ventilator allows more effective transmission of that positive end expiratory pressure, helps pop open the alveoli and helps them to participate in gas exchange. 
Now, traditionally, we've, we've reserved proning for the patients with severe ARDS because, quite honestly, the clinical trials, and there's been a number of them looking at proning, have only shown a benefit in those patients. Now, you see a lot of reports out there in terms of patients who are providers who are proning patients uh, with much milder forms of ARDS and patients who aren't intubated, who are on non-invasive ventilation and high-flow nasal cannula. And although those anecdotes are interesting, I think it's important to underline the fact that they are, they are not evidence-based at this point. Certainly, there's reasons why you might consider it. I've heard some anecdotes out of New York in the setting of ventilator shortages where patients have been, have been positioned in the prone position to potentially delay their need for mechanical ventilation. But I think this is a, it's a very interesting topic that merits further study. I think the other thing that we've talked about a lot is the risk of aerosol generation with a lot of these different procedures, and that's worth mentioning. Both high-flow nasal cannula, the non-invasive ventilation using BiPAP or CPAP, and for that matter, intubation and mechanical ventilation when the circuit has, is broken, all pose significant risk of aerosol generation. So that's a big infection control issue within our hospitals. There's been a lot of talk about whether or not patients should perhaps be intubated a little earlier because of that risk of aerosol generation. Again, I think that's another hot topic that, that deserves further research, but at least here we have been treating patients really more traditionally using a standard approach of non-invasive or high-flow um, nasal cannula if we can get away with it and have been having some success with that based on the patients that we've been caring for so far. So you mentioned the two types of patients who have lung disease, one with respiratory failure, but with a pliant lung, and the other is a stiff lung with ARDS. Is it still possible that the first one could morph into the second type of stiff lung ARDS, or they stay true to their kind all through the course of the illness? I think that's an excellent question. And honestly, that's one of the things that I've wondered as well. So one of the, thing, the things that has come out of many individual institutions descriptions, taking those patients who are hypoxemic but have compliant lungs, but still have a very high respiratory drive and we worry about those patients when they have a high respiratory drive and potentially are dyssynchronous with the ventilator, what degree of ventilator-associated lung injury may develop. As a result, there are some groups that have gone away from that low tidal volume ventilation strategy that is classic with ARDS, and instead have been ventilating these patients with higher tidal volumes, hoping that that will help with the patient ventilator synchrony and reduce that risk of ventilator-associated lung injury. Whether that ventilation at higher tidal volumes has caused these patients to progress to a more typical ARDS pattern, I just don't know the answer to that question, but it's certainly something that I've worried about. I think it's always important, you know, everybody when they face a, a new challenge like this, develop lots of theories. And I think we've all seen those out there in the popular press. You know, we've got very good at managing ARDS, and we've learned a lot of things over the course of the last several decades to the point where, you know, quite honestly, we've seen a dramatic reduction in our, our mortality within our health system, and the same is true for many, many other health systems. And I, I hope that providers out there are not willing to throw the baby out with the bathwater just because we have a new infection and perhaps some slightly different characteristics um, for a group of patients with respiratory failure that, that we're typically very good managing.
I know we are seeing a flattening of the curve in New York and in Mayo and Minnesota, and we are not that hard pressed for ventilators as yet. But there's all these reports of having uh, one ventilator serving two patients. Somebody even went all the way to saying six or seven patients. Do you think that's possible? It's feasible? The aeros I mean, all these aerosols and chance of infection, uh, it seems to be multiplying with these, uh, these uh, methods. Yeah, so I think the simple answer to that is no. We shouldn't be putting more than one patient on a ventilator. And uh, that statement is supported by a very eloquent Quad Society statement that was published about a week and a half ago that one of our respiratory therapists, Steve Holitz, was a co-author on. The concept here is that a ventilator for all the bells and whistles is a pretty simple device. It pushes air into a patient's chest and that air will go down the pathway of least resistance. So if you have two different patients that have two different sets of lungs and almost undoubtedly the physiology or compliance of those lungs and that, and that respiratory system will be different between the patients, the air will go down the pathway of least resistance which means at the end of the day, your risk of overinflating one patient's lungs and potentially creating ventilator-associated lung injury is high, and your risk of underinflating another patient's lungs and not providing them with appropriate therapeutic levels of positive end expiratory pressure that might help them to deliver oxygen and, and, uh, and stabilize while their lung disease is improving is very high. So honestly, I think that there's really no way to manage all of those different dynamic variables. And that's the reason why the consensus statements have come out so strongly against it. Thank you for that, Alex. Now. When we are managing in ICU or traditional ARDS patients, you're going, seeing them coming. But this is a very unique, uh, highly infectious aerosols, chance of getting infected, PPE. What are you seeing in the front lines in ICU? The requirements for PPE and just the need of changing and gowning and taking off and regowning. Uh, there seems to be a lot of activity which does not happen in any illness that I know of. Yeah, no, I, I think that's well put. My last time in the ICU was three weeks ago, just when we were starting to see COVID patients coming into our system. And I can tell you that the infection pre control precautions that we talk about, the donning and the doffing uh, of, uh, of personal protective equipment, and of course, I should backtrack here a second and, and just highlight the fact that we worry about COVID transmission through three potential avenues. So uh, we worry about a COVID uh, transmission through contact. So we know that the virus can exist on surfaces and remain viable for a period of time. We worry about droplets basically traveling through the air and landing mainly on our mucous membranes and, and the potential for transmission there. And that's the reason why we're wearing masks all over the place right now. And then certainly when we talk about high flow oxygen or high flow air, like you see in many different states in the ICU with high flow nasal cannula, non-invasive ventilation and, and intubation and, and invasive mechanical ventilation when you break the circuits, that can generate aerosols, which are smaller, finer particles that can travel not just in the upper respiratory tract, but move down into the lung, into the lower respiratory tree. So when 
most of our patients who are, you know, uh, receiving continuous aerosol generating procedures, like the different things that I've just described, you know, our nurses, respiratory therapists, and physicians are getting dressed in gowns, gloves, uh, typically an N95 mask or a positive air pressure respirator or PAPR device. And that's for, for any sort of high or medium risk aerosol generating procedure of which all of those auction delivery things that I've just described um, fall into. So I, I think there's a huge time burden with putting those things on and taking them off. We have a buddy system to make sure that those things are done right every time uh, because that's important from an infection control standpoint. So that's more staff time and resources that are associated with that. And because when we're in a position where a patient is in a room that's closed and there's a lot of aerosol generation, we want to minimize staff going in and out of the room on a regular basis. We've developed a lot of different workflow adaptations to minimize that. So consolidating testing, minimizing unnecessary testing as much as possible, having an additional staff member who can help to interact and take care of things who's outside of the room. We've been using different technology solutions uh, like the InTouch system that has allowed us to communicate back and forth through the glass uh, more effectively with nurses and respiratory therapists who are in the room. And we've also been working to adapt our technology for things like uh, putting our ventilator controls outside of the room so that we can minimize the number of people having to go in and out for ventilator checks and, and things along those lines. That's a short description that I don't think think does anywhere near the justice to the tremendous stress and strain that we're placing, especially on our frontline nurses and respiratory therapists who are caring for these patients. Well, I saw a picture in the Time magazine. They said person of the year, and there were four nurses who had all these rashes on their face from the COVID um, N95 mask and just having it for long periods of time. And they were looking tired and dark circles around their eyes with those with the rashes it's amazing what they're going through now i've contacted my my friends in us and in uk and some of them are saying use steroids and some are saying no don't use steroids that will make the covid worse what is happening in the field of pulmonary and covid as far as number one steroid is concerned and number two just overall the management of these patients yeah so our our guidance based on our review of the literature that we have coalesced into a summary of recommendations and right now is actually being converted into Ask Mayo Expert content for continuous curated information for the broader, uh, for the broader medical community has been not to use steroids in this situation. And uh, the basis behind that is fairly simple. There's really no clear evidence of benefit for corticosteroid use in the setting of a COVID-19 infection. And there is at least some data looking back at similar infections with SARS and MERS, the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, that, uh, that came from a very similar coronavirus, that there is an increased risk of viral shedding 
And so therefore an increased infection control concern in patients who are placed on corticosteroids. So we are not routinely using corticosteroids in our practice. Although you will still see people debate about that for say somebody who has bad obstructive lung disease and comes in with a COVID infection and a COPD exacerbation, sort of more typical you know, roles that we think about corticosteroids in that setting. When it comes to other therapies, gosh, you know, I'll tell you, I, I'm sorry to be such a minimalist, but I would love to repeat what I said earlier on in our conversation about the need to administer these therapies in the setting of a clinical trial. I think we've seen plenty of anecdotes out there over the course of the last weeks with regards to people not even patients who have been seriously hurt taking things like hydroxychloroquine for prophylaxis because of concerns of developing a COVID-19 infection. Certainly there are a lot of different agents out there. Um, I think within the first weeks of the COVID pandemic, we received requests to participate in, in over 170 different randomized clinical trials. And really the, the challenge has been sifting through all of those different trials for feasibility and viability so that we so that we ensure that we are maximizing the impact of the research that we do to help identify effective treatments for this disease quickly we are not treating any patients without uh, the collaborative consultation of our infectious disease colleagues with the primary goal of maximizing the chances of um, enrolling these patients so that we can understand what's best for them. You know, I think we only need to cast our, our mind back to the Ebola outbreak that we had just a few years ago. The, um, the rapid use of all sorts of different agents, largely through a compassionate use pathway. And at the end of that experience, we really had very little further understanding of what worked and what didn't work to take care of Ebola infections. And unfortunately, I, I fear that the SARS-CoV virus is SARS-CoV-2 virus is is here to stay. So we need to we need to know how to treat this and how to reduce the the small but significant mortality that uh, that we're seeing with these patients. I know it's still still like we are a couple of months into the infection, but we know how patients with ARDS who have a ventilator. Uh, even after they get out of the ventilator, it takes them a while to get back to normal. They will need therapy and physical therapy and chest physiotherapy. Looking at these patients, the CT scans and the findings, if you were to plan out a post and they make, and they make it through your ICU, and they're on the way to discharge, what are you going to tell the patients as far as post-COVID management, follow-up with pulmonary, and what kind of life are they looking at? Are they going to be normal completely or are they going to be leave, left with some element of lung damage? Well, so I, I think that that's a good question. And, uh, and for that, I think I would, I'd like to emphasize some of the things that we know really work when it comes to improving both survival and, and post-ICU quality of life in our critically ill patients. And unfortunately, we've walked away from some of those principles since the SARS pandemic occurred, some for good reasons, but I, I would argue in some cases, perhaps a little bit too quickly. So what are the things that we know will help to improve functional capacity and speed recovery in a critically ill patient with respiratory failure and ARDS? Well, you know, certainly if we can minimize the time of mechanical ventilation, 
we know that that helps because it reduces the risk of ventilator-associated lung injury. It reduces the risk of a secondary ventilator-associated pneumonia. And it, uh, it helps us in terms of minimizing sedative agents, which can contribute to delirium and then further lengthen ICU length of stay, also increase the risk of aspiration for that matter. What we've done with, uh, with, since the COVID pandemic occurred is we've tended to intubate patients earlier because of concerns for aerosol generation and leave them on the ventilator for longer periods of time because we're concerned about the risk of aerosol generation when we remove that endotracheal tube and the reports out there of recurrent respiratory failure and reintubation that remains relatively ill-defined. Because we're concerned about infection control issues, these patients are isolated in rooms. They don't have the ability to interact with their family the way that they normally do. We know the tremendously beneficial effects of having familiar voices and, and faces around. And those infection control practices, even when you think about healthcare providers, they don't have a face. They have somebody who's got a mask on and a, and a, and a face shield and is, is gowned and gloved. What the impact is from that, from the, from the standpoint of a post-ICU care syndrome and the altered thought process, processes, cognitive function, and even PTSD that comes along with that, I, I don't think that we fully appreciate at this point. But we know that minimizing sedative medications, removing invasive devices as early as possible, doing early mobility in these people, and providing adequate nutrition, all of these things are incredibly important to speed recovery in all the critically ill patients. And I think we need to relearn those lessons a little bit in some of our COVID patients. Obviously, there's challenges that go along with that. How do you mobilize somebody who's you know, in isolation in a room? But I think that's where, where creativity and innovation are gonna come in. In terms of the follow-up, you know, we know that uh, that ARDS survivors do have uh, all sorts of different limitations that are common, both physical limitations, chronic respiratory complaints, and it takes a long time for them to get back up on their feet. I think another real challenge that we're facing as a healthcare system is for those patients who survive a prolonged intensive care unit course with a COVID infection, who require more intensive inpatient rehabilitation or even long-term ventilator support, access to those facilities has been a real problem because who's in those facilities, typically older individuals with multiple comorbidities. And so medical directors are, are not enthusiastic about bringing somebody who has recently recovered from a COVID infection into that setting. And I think that's been another real challenge that uh, I don't necessarily have a straightforward answer to right now. Thank you. Thank you for bringing those points. We learn a lot of lessons from it, how to manage these kind of situations. I don't think nothing prepared us for this situation. But now that yeah. we we'll learn something. And I, I really think that that's an important point to make. So our hospital, like many other hospitals in the country, have basically uh, prohibited visitors from uh, from coming in and seeing um, seeing COVID patients. And so that becomes a really significant issue in terms of both building a therapeutic relationship with patients and families 
it, uh, it also creates, I think, a huge issue for families, especially when their loved ones are critically ill. And so, as you've mentioned, we've, we've actually made considerable efforts to try to maintain and humanize the ICU setting as much as possible. We have this thing called a get to know me board, which is just a simple list of questions that helps us to get to know critically ill patients a little bit more as human beings and allows us to, to connect with them on a personal level in terms of their likes and dislikes and understand perhaps their values that they bring to the table a little bit better. We've been working on ways to um, systematize the methods of communication that we have with families. You've already mentioned our iPad system that we've been using to allow patients to connect with their families and be able to see their faces. And we've been working to use similar technology to provide families with daily updates so that uh, so they don't feel like they're in a vacuum and don't know what's going on with their loved ones. Um, I think that's incredibly important for all of us to remember because, I mean, this is a stressful time for us all. And, uh, and I think it's, uh, it's a great opportunity for us as healthcare providers to remember how vulnerable that patient feels in the bed uh, as we recognize our own vulnerabilities when it comes to the, the risks that we take caring for these patients every day. Yeah, no, it is, it is something which we have never planned, thought of, and now we are faced with this situation. Alex, I know you've been, you've been a leader in education and you're involved in the Ask Mayo database and creation of Ask Mayo resources for COVID. Could you please describe what is the scope of the Ask Mayo expert, especially with COVID, and I understand it's going to be available to everybody listening to our podcast. Uh, all the contents are going to be available to our audience. Absolutely. Well, so as you know, Ask Mayo Expert is basically a, a summarized, very detailed uh, database of information providing healthcare professionals around the world with sort of best practices and specific recommendations that we, uh, that we commonly provide within the Mayo healthcare system. Given the fight against COVID, and we've already talked on this conversation about the challenges in identifying and curating high quality information with all of the different uh, unique experiences that are coming from all sorts of vetted and less well vetted information sources, the Mayo Clinic felt it was very important to have a high quality curated source of information that is updated on an ongoing basis and synthesizes um, the explosion of medical literature that is coming out relative to COVID-19. So um, in a very exciting initiative, there is a group of us who have partnered with the editorial board of Ask Mayo Experts to help synthesize and curate this content uh, based on continuous scoping reviews that are being facilitated out of the current Center for Healthcare Delivery. And so um, this is the, this this material went live this week and will continue to be updated. And as you said, will be available um, not only to uh, individuals within the uh, Mayo Clinic Care Network, but also for the broader audience, uh, recognizing the importance of rapid dissemination of best practices as they're identified. This might come back in some form, milder. Even, even if it comes, I think we'll be better prepared. I'm just making a guess. But I can't imagine how you can be challenged in the ICU setting uh, with the situation 
which affects every element of ICU care and pitches one person against the other, one doctor against the other, social distancing, physical distancing. And the technology has helped us tremendous, like what you said. And so working in this new environment, as we go ahead, optimizing the situation, uh, that'll be the next innovation, I'm sure, getting, getting all these digitalized, wireless, uh, having absolutely one doctor working with a nurse in a seamless fashion, which is happening at present, but suppose it's as chaotic as it's in New York, how do you manage that situation by um, smoothly? So I, I think there's going to be a lot learning, but that's not, that's not the problem now. Right now, we are just dealing with this crisis. I thank you uh, for the excellent, excellent uh, answers to our question. We've been talking about the pulmonary complications of COVID-19 with Dr. Alexander Niven, uh, who's a consultant in pulmonary and critical medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester. Um, we learned from Dr. Niven that there's a lot of complexity uh, in every aspect and how critical monitoring of the patient once they get into ICU is important because they have different types of lung injuries requiring different types of management. We also learned that all patients with dyspnea don't need to come and they can be monitored sometimes by telemonitoring and remote monitoring uh, system and they don't need to overwhelm the e ER system. We also learned that there is no immediate reason for doing a chest x-ray or a CT scan, but because the complexity of these cases, apart from COVID and pneumonia, and lung injury because of COVID, they could also have heart failure, they could have pulmonary embolism, thereby complicating their case and requiring this additional testing. So I, I, I thank Dr. Alex Niven. Uh, um, Any last thoughts? You, you've been there, you've seen how it interacts. It looks like there's so many things going on, not only the patient, but you rightly mentioned the patient's family. As a human being there, we want to connect. And then the post-discharge care of these patients, which seem to be a complex endeavor, given the limitations that you have said. And going forward, there's going to be a large number of patients who will require this care. Uh, we have to get our thoughts together on how to manage them, but that is probably a different talk. Yeah. Any last thoughts? So I, I did want to hit on something that you just said there with regards to the fact that this is going to be a marathon and not a sprint. And certainly we hope that we'll find a vaccine that will reduce the risk and the prevalence of, of these viral infections. But, uh, but this is something that is still going to place a significant stress on not just our healthcare system, but our society for some time. I think that for me, you mentioned up front that I'm a I'm a retired army officer. And so my my feelings as we've been going through this pandemic, watching the preparedness and then starting to fight the war has been very similar to the experiences that I've had in past deployments. And I think for me, one of the messages that I wanted to leave the healthcare uh, providers who are listening to this call is to think about ways to maximize their performance for the long term. We know that stress and, uh, and all of this disruption to our normal routines, both at home and at work, tend to degrade human performance. And so how do we maintain at our absolute best so that we can take the best care of our patients during these stressful times 
and prevents ourselves from making errors, which could have significant ramifications, not just for our patients, but also for ourselves. Well, you've already talked about all of the workflow innovations that we've tried to do and will continue to, um, to, to shape our environment to make it as advantageous as possible and easy to take care of these patients. But I think we all have a significant personal responsibility to train our minds so that we can recognize when we are not at our best and performing, performing off our peak because of stress and fatigue. There are a number of different techniques that we can use, and many of these now are publicly available because of the outpouring of, of, um, of well wishes that many organizations have had for healthcare providers. And so mindset training and thinking about ways to recognize stress and to be able to channel those stressful feelings in the right way so that we do the right thing for our patients every time is incredibly important. And then the last thing, although it sounds hokey, is just resilience. Uh, so I think it's really important for us to maintain some sort of connection while still sheltering in place and keeping our social distance to talk about the challenges and deal with the emotions that naturally come with it, along with getting enough sleep, getting enough exercise, and, uh, and sticking to our routines as best, as best possible. I, I think that's the message that I would love to, to keep um, so that we can all keep it our best in, in what I'm afraid is gonna be a long fight. Thanks, Alex. So we have the benefit of having an army doctor who's now a Mayo doctor and much to the, uh, and is benefit, benefiting us, but, Going forward, I think uh, we would probably have the logistics, the supply chain, how the army organizes uh, scenario, plan, scenario planning, the best case scenario, worst case scenario. Uh, I think what COVID has really done to us is has really shaken us up. It's no longer just a medical problem, it's an economic problem. Uh, there are there's tremendous, uh, um, as we are seeing impact on the society. Uh, so I think the army is, going through and does this kind of planning on a regular basis. They are mentally, physically, um, they're always prepared not to, not to underscore what we do here. But I, I think that that kind of mindset is going to come and we'll have to prepare ourselves as the medical personnel, physically, mentally, and re by resilience. Post-COVID phase, uh, our way we approach medicine with telemedicine, uh, working as teams, scenario planning, uh, PPE, I've never heard so much discussion on PPE and the innovations which revolve around remote monitoring, uh, limiting infection, that's going to be very important. Thank you, Alex. Uh, we will continue to bring you updates on the situation of COVID as events uh, unfold. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy and see you back next week. Thank you.